Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest on today's show is Andrew Bunt. Andrew is an assistant pastor at King's Church in Hastings and Bexhill, and is the author of a couple books, Who in Heaven's Name Do You Think You Are? <laughs> Exploring Your Identity in Christ, and the recently released book, People Not Pronouns, which is a short book that deals with the transgender conversation. Andrew uh, works for, or I don't he probably volunteers for, the the amazing ministry called Living Out. It's a UK-based ministry that deals with questions about sexuality and gender. It's very similar to the ministry that I run here in the U.S., the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And I've gotten to know Andrew from a distance over the last maybe year or so and have just um, just found him to be an absolute delight, super thoughtful, super gracious. I mean, I feel like he's one of those guys that we find ourselves almost finishing each other's sentences. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to have Andrew on the show. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We talk about well, we talk about some interesting topics, as you probably know from the show uh, title. If you would like to support Theology in the Raw, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. All the info is in the show notes. Please consider leaving a review of this show and sharing this episode as you see fit through your various so- social channels. All right, let's get to know the one and only Andrew Bunt. Hey, Andrew, welcome to Theology in the Raw. Thanks for being a guest on my show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So for those who don't know uh, who you are, why don't you give us a brief snapshot of uh, who you are, where you come from. You you, uh, you do have an accent, so we can start there. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm uh, from the UK, if you can't tell. I'm on the southeast coast right at the bottom. I kind of say, uh, go to London, head straight down. When your feet get wet, you're in the sea. You're in Bexhill, which is a little seaside town, mostly retired people and young families uh, where I live. And I serve as an assistant pastor at a church here and also in the neighboring town of Hastings. And I also work for an organization called Living Out. Yeah. So uh, for those who don't know, I mean, Living Out is, I I, I mean, I hope I can say this. It would be uh, we, we have almost like an informal relationship. The When I say we, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, yeah. and Living Out, to my mind, is just doing such amazing work over there in the UK. And I, everything I read, literally, I mean, everything I read by you guys is just amazing and so thoughtful. And you balance that, just that grace, truth, tension so well. So I just, um, I'm just glad you guys exist. So, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. So are you, so I preached at a church where Andrew Wilson used to be the pastor. I'm blanking on the name now. Is that near where you're at or? That's, that's Eastbourne. So that's the next Eastbourne, along the coast. Eastbourne, yes. So it's yes. my church in Hastings and Bexhill and the next town along is Eastbourne. Yeah, just 20 minute drive, drive down the road from me. Wait, is that where, who's the, who's the senior leader there? Uh, it's changed recently. A okay. youngish guy called Ollie Stevens at the moment. Okay. Great guy. I was thinking of a guy, again, I'm, I'm too, sorry. <laughs> it's earlier here than it is there. Um, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm blanking on all these names, but there is a, um, oh gosh, he's written a lot on sexuality. Um, I thought he was a pastor near Hastings, but maybe okay. not. Um, oh gosh. Anyway. Not great. Um, Glenn Scrivener is based in Eastbourne. Or Speak Life. He does stuff in sexuality. Anyway. I don't want to bog down the conversation. So, um, and you studied at Durham, right? For your in, yeah, in, yeah. So undergrad in theology at Durham, and then a master's in biblical studies at King's College London. 
Okay. Are you going to go on to do a PhD or, or do you feel I'm, that or? I'm very open to the idea. Uh, okay. I've kind of gone back and forth. I've explored it sometimes. It hasn't come together. Uh, yeah, I feel quite open-handed about it. I, I would enjoy it. I would love to do it in some ways. But I also think I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing what God's calling me to do. So wait and see how things pan out, really. Okay. Okay, cool. Do you have any, like, certain area if, if you could do a PhD? If, somebody's, if somebody said, Andrew, you are going to do a PhD. Yeah. I'm paying for it. This is your calling. What, like, what would you do it? Do well, it that in. is the dream, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I know. My, my first love is biblical studies. That's what most of my uh, undergrad and master's work was on. So I'd love to sit on there. I have a weird infatuation with Leviticus and just in general, the kind of underdogs of the Bible. Underdogs in general, I think I have a heart for. <laughs> underdogs of the Bible included. So maybe something around Leviticus or the minor prophets or something. Although increasingly, I wonder if I did do um, a PhD, if actually I'd do something around ethics, because a lot of my work now is ethics. Okay. I wonder if there's some work to done around polyamory. I just think we're totally not ready for what's coming in terms of polyamory or, and or sex robots. They know the next big things. And I wonder if there'd be some good work to do around that. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. Occasionally, I think, would that be a way to go? And maybe it will be one day. I don't know how to, I don't know how to word this. It's, uh, when we talk about these things, it's just there's, there's no real pure way to word it. But uh, yeah, I've been very interested in polyamory and sex with robots. <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea, the 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 cultural phenomenon phenomena of uh, those two things. I mean, poly, um, oftentimes they get used as kind of like, a, well, if you if we embrace this, it's going to lead to polyamory and all. You know, some oftentimes people don't think about the actual thing very clearly, or they'll cite sex with robots as some far out thing as just something that's like evidence that of the moral decay of society. Um, but these are two really interesting questions um, that aren't just fringe thing. I don't I don't know what it is how it is in the UK, but in the states, I, I've read several stats where uh, something like five percent of the population are or have been in some kind of polyamorous mm-hmm. um, or maybe an open relationship, which would be a form of polyamory, sort of. Um, yeah. And sex with robots. I mean, that's all we can we can go there if you want. I mean, I, that's the little I've dabbled. My favorite in thing that. to do is to go to places to speak and throw in the like, bombshell of sex with robots. <laughs> and it's like, what? <laughs> students love it. We're teaching students. Yeah. They just love it, and it's just really a conversation zone. Because I think what I think, yeah, it is happening. The trajectory is moving. It's moving quickly. I think quicker yeah. on both of them than we than we expect, and that most people would expect. I just don't think we're ready. And actually, we need to get the underpinnings to our understanding of sex so we're ready to respond to that right. and not have quite kind of shallow answers to that, which is always the risk. Yeah. And I think always, you know, the work I do now on, on same-sex attraction and transgender and stuff, I think we're always playing catch-up with Christians. Yeah. And actually, I would love us to actually learn to discern the times, uh, listen to the guidance of the Spirit of God and where we should be focusing and actually get ahead on some stuff so we can engage right in the heart of it not kind of five years after society's changed and made its mind up, we go, yeah. hang on a minute, we better think about this. What do we think about yeah. this? So, yeah, that's why I guess it, it, it sticks to my mind now, even though it's not quite here in the mainstream yet, because why don't we ready for that point rather than react then? I read somewhere, it was a sociologist, a really credible sociologist that said, if the trajectory keeps going at the pace it is talking about like pornography talking about just technological development which both of those things i don't see slowing down or like um and this i think it was a female sociologist said if things keep going this way by 20 i think it was 2050 
more humans will be having sex with robots than with other humans. Unless yeah, pornography yeah. all of a sudden starts to die out or if technolo- technological advancement kind of like people get kind of sick of developing new things, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, have, like have you, money, it seems unlikely. <laughs> very unlikely, which is a little bit frightening. I mean, and th- this was a secular yeah. sociologist who said this is going to have significant um, effects on society. And there's even moral arguments that yeah. are interesting to consider. For instance, what if the prevalence of ro- robots for sex uh, reduces child tra- trafficking, uh, prostitution, even adultery, um, all these things? Like, and <laughs> there's obviously several problems with the line of reason, but you people, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting. This yeah, isn't yeah. just some crazy, weird fetish kind of thing that's taken off. It's like, it, it's going to be an ethical conversation as well. I, how have you thought through this? I, I didn't expect to talk about this on the podcast, by the way, this is really interesting. But. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think, I think you're right that what's interesting is there are very few good secular arguments against either of these. I mean, it's focused on sex robots and sex robots, really. There's kind of the general current disgust that many people would feel, but disgust wears off the more common something becomes and the less new an idea it is to use. That'll wear off. There's very little then reason for secular people to object particularly to sex robots. But as you say, there are some arguments some people will try to use at least to argue for them as a positive thing. And I agree there's some problems with that. So I think, as with all engagement with sexuality as Christians, what we need to do is go deeper. We need to think more deeply about what is sex about? And, you know, because that ultimately is always the reason for the difference between a Christian sexual ethic and sexual kind of parameters and a secular one. Yeah. Actually, it's not that God has some arbitrary lines that, you know, jump through these hoops for me and I'll bless you. Actually, it's no, uh, here's the grain of the universe. Here's the way to live to find fullness of life, because this is what sex is for and about. And so when we understand sex is about being part of the deep one flesh union of one man and one woman, which represents the deep union of Christ and the church, who are two and only two, that's important for polyamory, who are different uh, uh, in the sense of male and female referencing Christ and the church in a way. And particularly with sex robots is the fact that sex is meant to be about the giving of oneself to another. Sex is not meant to be, what can I get out of this relationship and this physical activity? Actually, it should be, how can I lay down my life for your sake, who I'm committed to in this covenant? How can I reflect the... uh, uh, the ministry of Christ to you by laying down myself for your pleasure. And of course, the sex variable is exactly the opposite. The sex variable is, who cares about the sex variable? It's not about them, it's about me. What can I get from this thing? How can I take God's gift of sex mm. and make it about my satisfaction? And actually, as with pornography, it will find it's a never-ending kind of uh, tunnel you fall down because you're always looking for it satisfying. You won't mm. because sex can't satisfy. It's not meant to satisfy you in that long-lasting mm. or total, total fulfillment kind of way. Yeah. And so I think it has become a thing like porn, where people go deeper and deeper into it. It gets more and more hardcore, whatever that will look like in that kind of context, because it's looking for satisfaction in something that can never actually meet that need. Right. And the great thing is that, because the one thing that could happen, it could happen that with, which we've seen kind of a little bit of the sexual revolution in general, and it could happen with porn, it could happen with sex robots, that many more people begin to realize this isn't doing what it promised. The sex revolution promised me if I had lots of sex and minimal emotional connection, all that kind of stuff, hookup culture, that, that I'll feel great and it'll be fulfillment, it'll be self-actualization of my real self inside. And actually, if more and more people, as is happening to some extent, realize this hasn't worked. Mm. A, I don't feel overly fulfilled by all these relationships of lots of sex and no emotional connection or all this porn or this sex of a robot. Mm-hmm. 
And also I look around the world and I think, actually, oh, the sexual revolution has caused some kind of problems like Me Too and different kind of things. Mm-hmm. It's possible that the fact that we're going against the grain of the universe will become apparent and people will think, maybe this isn't the best way to use our bodies and our sexualities. I don't know if that will happen by the grace of God. It yeah. might do. Um, who knows? Yeah, they, they, I, feel like, I feel like there's glimmers at that moment, but nowhere near enough to turn the tide. Right. Yeah, I mean, if <laughs> if we do get to the point to where sex with robots become becomes pretty popular, and if that doesn't satisfy, it's like, well, what what comes after that? Like polyamorous yeah, sex yeah, with robots, or what? I mean, it, it's hard to imagine a world, or it's easy to imagine a world that exactly what you're describing. One that when you keep going against the grain of the universe, keep going against the way God has designed humans to act, there's just going to be that 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 itch that's never quite fully scratched. You know, yeah, like it's yeah. just this what's the next thing? What's the next thing? After a while, you would think it would just get tiring. Like, I don't know, maybe yeah, we yeah. should rethink this whole thing. You would, you would think it might get to that point. It's hard to imagine society kind of having a, for lack of a better term, some kind of like conservative awakening, but maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's happened before, yeah, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it can. Yeah. And you know, there are, there are strong anti-porn movements among secular people now. Okay. People who realize the damage of porn that's had on them. Um, and yeah, how much better life has been for them getting free for porn in lots of different ways. So that's an interesting thing because that is an experiential. It's not a uh, religious thing, a, a kind of worked through morality thing. It's just actually I've experienced the fact that this really wasn't good for me. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to break free from it. And so it is interesting that in that particular little area, there's thing happening mm-hmm. on where it goes eventually. I mean, you know, I wonder, blues my thinking, will transhumanism and sex robots merge? Will we get to the point where actually the next stage is electrodes in our brain, which always fire the necessary receptors to fill that stuff so we have it 24 percent i don't know but that's kind of yeah. that's the crazy stuff you know that gets developed at the moment and because we are people who are desperate for pleasure or desperate for satisfaction rightly yeah. we're made for that yeah. but actually we are just kind of on a quest for uh, the set the temporary sensation of pleasure yeah. in wherever we can find it and sex is a big one we've gone for in our culture in our day and age uh, in, in the west at least when actually the, the true satisfaction can only be found in god yeah. is there and waiting but with minds blinded, people aren't going to turn there until Christ acts. I, I wonder if, um, I just thought of this right now, uh, so it's probably incorrect, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, if, if you had like some kind of economic collapse, that would play a significant role, I think, in some of these things because, I mean, let's face it, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like Hunger Games, it's the capital, it's having too much, way too much money, way too much time on our hands, way too much comfort when we start just, mm-hmm. get, just kind of just getting... <laughs> numb and just just pursuing pleasure after pleasure after pleasure but that really is a first world problem right i mean yeah, yeah. people that are you know working to put food on the table if they can get two meals a day you know is awesome and they just didn't i don't know it's like yeah. these kind of problems don't exist in those kind of societies i don't think am i is that would that be accurate to say i mean um i i, I think so i, I don't i'm far more expert on that but i think so yeah and you do one yeah if an economic crash if I know some major environmental thing, something that hugely disrupts, you know, yeah. COVID's done it to an extent, but disrupts even more. Because COVID's an interesting example, but it has caused people, some people to think more deeply, ask the bigger questions, question what life is about. If my life really is suddenly a threat, yeah. or, or a lot of the things I thought I would always, you know, I was running after to find fulfillment, I can't go and do them, has caused me to ask questions. Interesting, certainly here in the UK, we've had so many people do uh, alpha courses, like exploring Christianity courses online, People, you know, most weeks at our church, we're getting people turn up who have 
maybe some church background, maybe not, have engaged with us in our online context over the last how long it's been and now are with us. And you think, oh, it's interesting, this season has done something mm-hmm. and God can and does use, yeah, the unpleasant things mm-hmm. to disrupt us from that comfort and to bring us to that. Which I guess comes back to, you know, if you think, um, are you familiar with, what's the name, Yuval Harari's book, uh, Homo Deus? No. Huh? Which is about transhumanism. So it's, trans- it's really, really helpful. So it's about transhumanism. Basically he's saying we as humans have dealt with in the West, modern Western world, dealt with the big problems that have plagued us for centuries and millennia, which I'll forget the three are, are war, famine, and plague. And you know, they're not completely dealt with. And interestingly, he had to deal with, does COVID undermine his idea? Yeah. But actually, if you deal with war, famine, and plague, which, to be honest, for us in modern Western countries, will not plight us to a huge extent, maybe with the extent of plague, but even if you compare COVID to how it would have been 100 years ago or how most other pre- Mm. or kind of pandemics earlier history being it's not much different once you deal with those all that matters is pleasure and mm. elongating life Interesting. and so he says our, our, our focuses now are not dealing with the great evils of war famine and plague our focuses are extending life and increasing our pleasure hence he says kind of transhumanism and stuff interesting um what's the I name of that? Why I brought that up in our conversation what's the name of that book again i need, I need to check uh homo deus homo deus um, by Yuma Harari, and there's one called Sapiens, which he sees kind of history up until now of humanity, which I haven't actually read, oh, but they're meant to be very good. Sapiens, yeah, I heard about that. Those are, yeah, too many books, Andrew. Oh, <laughs> too, too little time, time. <laughs> too little money, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> Before we leave Sex with Robots, I'm curious, again, just kind of thinking out loud, like morally speaking, where would you place something like this? And I'm just going to, a kind of just theoretical spectrum of like, say, masturbation, porn use, sex outside of marriage, maybe full-on adultery, like, um, have you thought about it in those kind of categories? Like, how, and people say, yeah, yeah. I don't know if, like, wh- why is this a sin and how bad of a sin is it? It's not an actual person. Um, you're not, I don't know, there's, I guess, different scenarios where yeah, people yeah. would think through this, but I don't know, where, where, where yeah. would you place I it? I haven't thought about it, and I'm always loath to <laughs> put marks and things. I mean, I guess, one thing to say is that some people to that question will just say all sins the same. I, I think we need to clarify that's not probably the case with the different levels of punishment given the Old Testament stuff. All sin is very serious right. and all sin deserves the ways of death. But I think you're right to say there's gradations. Right. I wonder if it does make a difference that it doesn't involve another person. Uh, so, so, for example, if I want to say this, I wonder if it's different from adultery because in adultery, you are committing an offence against the other person and against their spouse. Here you're committing an offence against your own body. I mean, Paul would say, you know, committing an offence against your own body. Uh, in 1 Corinthians yeah. 6, he'd say, sleeping a prostitute, I'm sure he would say the same with a sex robot. Um, <clears throat> but maybe not directly against someone else. Although, actually, if you are, if your engagement with a sex robot is attached to a fantasy of someone who is a real person, yeah. then you are sinning against them. So, Yeah. Yeah. Serious enough that we should be thinking about it and engaging with it and, yeah. um, <laughs> and yeah, I, I don't teaching even, our people well. I, and, and I don't want I don't want to even say I'm advocating for the way of thinking that's like, well, how bad is it? You know, like it's just kind of a a thin way of thinking about human behavior, morality, and sin. I mean, I like your idea of just like it goes against the grain of the universe. It goes against the the way God's designed us. It goes against God's intention. It's moving away from our humanity and not toward our humanity. Um, mm. But some people like that more just like, is it sin? Is it not? Is it bad? You know, how bad is it as bad as yeah, this? And yeah. I, yeah. Um, I think it's a, mis- it's a misuse of God's gifts of sex, which is not yeah. a good thing and probably sinful. 
and I think all the arguments for, you know, what actually if it's a better way of sex addicts dealing with addiction and stuff. Yeah. I just think biblically we can say no, because if you, you know, Romans 6, if you uh, act as a slave to something, you become a slave to it. We do become a slave to the things we do. And actually even kind of, not biblically, just what we know about the brain and neuroplasticity and addiction and different stuff, mm-hmm. it just seems to me like we know that actually that's not going to be a lasting solution to, um, to a problem such as sex addiction. Yeah. What, I'm just trying to think of some secular argument. Like, what about like weenie? Yeah, you have a sex addict who's addicted to having sex with prostitutes. Could this be a way to ease them off? Kind of like the nicotine patch for people addicted to smoking. Just kind of like let's just ease you off. Give you this robot for a few weeks. Or I could see people making this argument. Right? I mean, yeah, oh, of course, they will. absolutely they will. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, in a Christian context, it comes down to your viewing sanctification, doesn't it? Yeah. I think one of the things I've learned in my own life over the last few years is. God is incredibly gracious and takes us through process and journey. And I've noticed in my context, I've got a charismatic kind of context, mm. there can easily be a big focus on kind of instant change. Pray, click your finger, it will yeah. happen. How can that still be an issue? Biblically, and the language of freedom, we get freedom from all these things. Yeah. I think biblically, certainly in Paul, the language of freedom is about um, freedom from guilt uh, and condemnation and stuff. That's an instant <laughs> thing in the moment we turn to Christ. His language for our, our growth, or our being Christ-like, our living rightly, seems to me to be language of growth, um, of maturing, of walking out. It's ongoing stuff. Yeah. And I do think, in my circles at least, there's too much, or there's not enough openness to that sanctification is a process and takes time. Yeah. And so although I don't know, I don't know off of my head what I think about that as a way of helping that process take place, yeah. I do think the general concept of someone's not going to go from sex addict to fully living out biblical sexual ethic overnight is okay, even for someone who truly is born again. I think that yeah. fits with biblical pictures of this. So, yeah. yeah, if I'd use that way of helping some of the situation, I don't know. But mm. the idea of the journey, yeah, that's biblical, I think. Uh, okay, so polyamory. Are you seeing polyamory becoming more popular in the UK? Do you, do you see... Uh, uh, not in my circles. I mean, what I deserve. Not in your charismatic circles. <laughs> yeah, no, like, not, yet, not yet. Who knows? Who knows? Um, no, I mean, I, I don't have stats. and I don't know if there are stats. They weren't last time I looked, which is uh, a year ago, and I'm probably else to work on this for yeah, the, how common it is. I was aware of the stat you kind of talked about from the States. I think what I do see is it in popular media. Okay. Oh, right. Um, and yeah, and this, is, this is how these things happen. Of yeah. You get the... Um, <laughs> You know, same thing happening with the same-sex relationships. You get the uh, TV drama about a polyamorous thruple, three people in a relationship, as there was one on the BBC, the main TV channels over here um, last year, I guess it was, oh, which okay. you start by watching, if you have no exposure to polyamory, you start by watching thinking, this is weird, this is disgusting, this is wrong. And then you watch and you think, oh, they're such nice people. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh, it's so lovely the way that relationship development, they all really love each other. How could we possibly mm-hmm. deny this? And you get the victim narrative where they came out to their friends and family and they all kind of rejected them. How awful that these poor polyamorous mm-hmm. people got rejected. So you're getting those kind of stories in, yeah, from mainstream TV providers in the UK, which are the things which will change public thinking. Mm-hmm. And suddenly what previously has been kind of just not done and not accepted because it's just a bit odd. Might be a sense of disgust about it. It might just be oddness, but there's no good secular arguments against it. So it won't take long for that to change. Mm-hmm. The other one is celebrities. Celebrities are always the people, um, the trailblazers. Yeah. A number of celebrities have said various things over a period of years now, really, about uh, monogamy not being natural. Yeah. Um, 
being in relationships or the, the Smith, the Will Smith and um, well, his wife and their family have said various things. There's kind of debates over whether their relationship is or isn't open. They've been a bit ambiguous about that. Their daughter, Willow Smith, I think her name is, has come out saying she feels she is or could be polyamorous because she can love both a man and a woman at the same time. And again, especially for our young people, hearing things like that, a kind of celebrity figure, someone they look up to, that's all the kind of things that starts to normalize things. So I really think it's on its way, even if I can't tell you how common it actually is yeah. in practice in the UK at the moment. I mean, it's, I, and I, I don't like bringing up analogies too, um, too quickly or without caution. Obviously, every kind of relationship we're talking about has its similarities and differences from other kinds of relationships but it's what you're describing i mean it's it's almost word for word the societal acceptance of of a, of a same-sex relationship right i mean 20 years ago yeah. there was that kind of natural aversion and then you start introducing it through media some celebrities i mean ellen and others coming out and it's like oh we like Ellen and, and wow. So it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of more normal, you know? And I mean, do yeah. you, is it, and, and I'm not, I'm okay. <laughs> a few more qualifications. I'm not a slippery slope person. I'm not, I I'm really careful with saying this is like that or whatever, but I mean, but this is theology and raw. So I like to just speak and think honestly. I mean, do you see very strong similarities between how society has accepted same sex relationships and, how it probably think, will do exactly the same thing with polyamorous relationships. Yeah, I I think so. And I likewise don't like slippery slope arguments. They tend to be a bit scaremongering, a bit just kind of complaining about the world. I don't think slippery slope. I think these are just all the natural, understandable outworkings of changes in our thinking that have taken place. Um, that's true. Same-sex relationships, same or kind of secular modern views and trans or polyamory sex robots. Um, for sex, it's two things. Once you take away, well, once you change what sex is about you can change what you do with it. Mm -hmm. When sex stopped being in a Christian, as it is a Christian view, about the self-giving of one to another in a covenant of relationship with two that mirrors Christ in the church, mm -hmm. and where sex becomes actually just a pleasurable activity, that actually the doors kind of open wide. Mm -hmm. Also, when you remove sex from biology, which is the key thing, you know, so mm -hmm. one of the key things that has happened is we've separated sex and procreation. In our minds, we do not associate sex with the production mm -hmm. of kids. Every culture before us, until not that long ago, till the middle of the 1900s, I guess, yeah. largely would have done. When you had sex, it was a real risk. Sex was costly, as Mark Vignoris, or how you say his name, says in his book, Cheap Sex, actually, you Cheap know, sex, yeah. with, with, um, with contraception coming on, reliable contraception, sex is really cheap because there's not big risks there used to be. So once you untie the kind of uh, the link between sex and procreation, which by default makes it between two people and two people of the opposite sex, you kind of remove the problems. And what was fascinating in that TV program I mentioned about the polyamorous thruple is it all went really well for them to right near the end of the episode where there was a couple and a young lady who joined them in this relationship. The lady of the couple became pregnant. And so you think, oh, you've got a problem. And they realized they've got a problem. And they realized maybe this relationship can't work because now the man and the woman who originally together are forever united by the fact they have parented this child together. And only the two of them have biologically, you know, in DNA, fed into this child, where does this other lady who's in the relationship now kind of fit? And I find it fascinating. It's like right at the last episode, you've pointed out one of the big problems of polyamory. Of actually, two, three, more than two doesn't work in a sexual relationship, one of the key things sex is about. And what's so annoying is it ends, you think they're going to end with, they're going to have to split up so it doesn't work. And like the last shot, spoiler alert for anyone who watches this, it's called trigonometry. The last shot 
Is them all in the hospital, hugging, kissing? It's all okay. It never is explained how is it suddenly okay that two of them are forever bonded by this child and the other one isn't, which previously, you know, just before the birth was a great problem, but now isn't. But there's so many things. Once you take away the link between sex and kids, basically sex becomes open to pretty much any form, context, relationship, mixture of people, which is one of the reasons I think in our Christian teaching of sex, we need to reclaim the link between sex and procreation. You need to do it well and carefully. You have to answer the questions of contraception. We're very sensitive to the the reality and the pain of infertility for those who experience that. But actually, by completely pushing that away, I think we open the door to some of the problems we have Mm -hmm. uh, in helping our people to hold to a biblical view on sex. I've been thinking that direction too. I mean, probably like you, I mean, being raised and nurtured in a, I was in a, just a kind of a non-denominational, non-charismatic, but conservative evangelical context. And, and yeah, it was, I, I, um, never really put the two together (laughs) in a, in a, in that kind of like, it's like, yeah, sex can lead to procreation. And if you want to procreate, then you have the freedom to do so. But, but I never linked the two together so strongly. And then, you know, you start reading some more Catholic theology and are like, wow, this is kind of, kind of different than the environment I grew up with. But then you take that back to the scriptures and just a Christian theology of sex and marriage. And, and yeah, I, I'm not quite maybe Catholic yet in this, but I, 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 I see the lot. I don't, I see the logic of it and I haven't been too impressed with kind of the counter arguments because they usually have to do with some kind of like almost secular version of human autonomy and freedom. Um, mm-hmm. So here, I don't know, what do you think about this? I mean, I, it, obviously there's infertility, um, but even things like, what, what about like sex in, or um, an old couple getting married or say they are past the, age of childbearing. I mean, nobody's going to say they can't get married about all things <laughs> considered, you know, but like, what if having kids isn't even an option? <clears throat> a really strong procreation argument would say, well, if procreation is completely off the table, then, then you shouldn't get married. I've never heard anybody actually say that, but, no, no. Or, or even I think... maybe to, well, there's the old age sex, you know, an old couple getting married, but also, what what about a couple getting married that they aren't infertile, but they just are choosing not to have kids, but they still say they're called to marriage? That one's a little dicier for me, but yeah, yeah, that one's tricky. And that you know, as a part in this situation, I was having a conversation of why, because it might be there's a really good reason. Actually, we feel such a calling to go to this far from place, and we just think it would be so hard to bring up a child while doing what God calls us to do there. And it, and I think theologically, I'm still not sure if I'm comfortable. I want to talk talk to that couple. I still don't know if I would be comfortable to marry that couple. But that's radically different to, oh, well, who'd want kids? Who's want, who wants the, the money drain, the time drain, the energy drain? This relationship's about us. Because then I want to say, no, guys, this relationship is still there to bless other people, to be fruitful, both in the production of something, also the blessing of other people. I think with couples who are too old to uh, parent children or to conceive children, all those who go into marriage knowing that because of a, a medical condition, one, of them, one or both, they're going to be unable to conceive. I think where I see a difference in a there between an opposite sex couple and with a same sex couple same sex marriage is their bodies are still orientated towards the production of children. Mm-hmm. Just with with um, two men or two women, that just can't be the case. There's there's no way in which their bodies, without the help of science, which has been developed, can produce a child that combines genetic material from both of them. In a case where you've got a man and a woman united in marriage. Uh, 
and their sexual relationship, even if they know a child is not going to be produced, it's still the case that their bodies are created in a way which kind of points in that direction. Again, it's thing we're going with the grain of the universe. And well, with the old age thing, it's maybe different, but certainly with a case of facility, we the bodies might be orientated in that way, but may not always function that way. And we as Christians always have the best explanation for why there are some things that are not as they should be. And infertility is the best example of that. And this is why I think it's not insensitive to those experiencing the pain of infertility to link sex and procreation very firmly. Because actually saying sex and procreation meant to go together legitimizes the incredibly deep pain of people who experience infertility and who long for kids. Mm. It's saying actually your pain is totally understandable. Mm. Your t- pain is totally justifiable because something is uh, not as it should be because we were living in a world that is broken and marred by sin and so sometimes things don't work as they should be and so with those people we love and we lament and we try and be church family alongside them mm-hmm. but actually we don't kind of hide the truth that sex and kids are meant to go together yeah. actually we say because that's true your reaction is totally understandable we want to to love you in that yeah that's good yeah no it's yeah i think that's really that's about where I'm at with my thinking, I think um, it, it is it is hard. I mean, because it's this just goes against so much in our not just secular culture, yeah. but it's at least in the in the states. I mean, it's been largely absorbed by the church for for a number of years, and I don't so not actively pers- like it's not like the church is like pursuing this secular vision um, for sex, procreation, marriage, whatever, but it's like, it's just kind of, it's just like slowly absorbs it, you know? So I don't, I don't mm-hmm. necessarily fault, I don't, I don't, not fault, but I mean, I don't know. It's almost like it just, it kind of slowly happened. It seems like, you know, yeah. where there's so much of a secular understanding of <laughs> sex, marriage, procreation that just kind of trickled its way into the church. Um, and this is going back to one of your previous points about the, just the, the deep need for, um, or you were, you're talking about like being reactive against the next thing. We're always kind of be playing catch up. And one of the ways to get ahead, right, is to just lay a thick foundation for yeah. what is sex for? What is marriage for? Um, I, I like to ask young people sometimes like, you know, oh, we're going to get married. And I'm like, why? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and it sounds rude or whatever. But I'm like, no, but really like, well, oh, cool. Like, yeah. why, why do you, why do you, how do you know God's calling you to marriage? Like, what, tell me about that, you know, like the vision for marriage, you know, and, and they look at you funny, like, <laughs> well, we were, we're in love, you know, and, and, not, and not to diminish that at all. I think the Bible talks about that in some places, uh, song of songs and others, but, um, there's, there has to be a deeper, more like yeah, kingdom yeah, yeah, oriented yeah. vision for what the reality is God the feeling us. won't last. Yeah. You might get married because of the feeling of love. And I said, that's part of the thing. But if you're not committed to loving that person through self-sacrifice, when those feelings wane, right. your marriage is not going to last. Right. And actually, your, your commitment in marriage is I'm going to love you, as in I'm going to lay down my life actively for you day after day, regardless of how I feel. Yeah. And actually, that will maintain the feelings that the commitment of marriage, the laying down your life in active ways is the scaffolding in which you work on the feelings. Yeah. If you try and make the feelings the scaffolding of your marriage, your marriage will crumble because feelings come a day. One day you'll wake up and they won't look so good. Or one day they'll do something really annoys you. You think you're not so sweet after all. Yeah. What happens then if all it's based on is your feelings? There's got to be something more firm to it. Yeah. I almost want to talk about mixed orientation marriages. You, you said something that triggered a thought, <laughs> but I would, this, this, maybe tie the knot on polyamory for a second. What, one thing, so I think the, the, the key missing link between, well, let me organize my thoughts. Um, the, the, 
a secular sexual ethic, it has to do with consent and lack of harm, right? If there's genuine mm-hmm. consent um, and it's not harming anybody, then there's that's that's basically the framework. Um, so that would make sense. Obviously, polyamory satisfies those two um, those two things. But there is another point that often comes up, and that has to do with orientation. Um, that you know, once you start to introduce a stronger like ontology of sexual identity, that this is not just mm. what I do. This isn't just some choice because that that's a pushback. It's like, well, look, some people are you know gay, others are straight, some are bisexual, but polyamory, it's not. Like, you're just choosing to do this. But I don't know if you remember this. Dan Savage, a uh, gay, um, uh, what is he, a journalist or whatever, um, and uh, he got hammered when he said polyamory is not an orientation by a bunch of people. That, okay. Yeah. And yeah. as yeah. the earliest article I, can, I found is 2011 in a peer-reviewed law journal where somebody argued for polyamory as an orientation so you take the definite how we even defining orientation and they 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 kind of show that like this is very similar to how polyamorous people describe themselves and that see that's a key phrase it's not just a polyamorous relationship it's not just polyamorous desire once you start using the category of polyamorous people i mean i i I think that's going to be significant. We're already seeing that that yeah, shift yeah. in language to be more ontologically significant. Anyway, yeah. I'm, 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 and it's, that's, I, have you seen I mean, that, this, that, and what that, do you think about that? Yes. Oh, definitely. And that is inevitable because another one of my key passions is because of the way identity has changed. Because now culture is constantly telling us that who we are is how we feel inside. Our feelings and our desires are who we are. Hmm. That is more real and more important than anything else. So it doesn't matter that your body's orientated to have a sexual relationship with some of the other sex to produce children. Actually, if who you feel inside, you want to have a relationship with someone of the opposite sex or same sex or lots of different people, that is kind of who you are. And because we have said that with so many people and places, you now have to say a polyamory. Because if you deny that polyamorous desire is who someone is, well, then you also have to deny that actually uh, an attraction to guys for a guy is who someone is. But that message is being shouted so loudly at us all the time. The classic example, you may have heard someone else do this, Keller does it wonderfully, um, is Frozen. I love Frozen. Uh, but it is just the story telling our kids from you know day dot that who they are inside needs to be embraced. She starts being the good girl, finding her identity and what other people say about her, living up to their standards, you know, staying inside, not freezing people to death, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the whole film is her throwing off that constraint of what other people think of her and embracing who she really is inside. And she goes off and sings that song, Let It Go, the, you know, the big anthemic statement which became such a big hit. And part of the reason it became such a big hit is that is what our culture believes about who we are. Mm-hmm. Let it go. I'm going to let it all out. I'm not holding it back anymore. I don't care what people say. This is who I am. And even if people back home are freezing to death because of who I am, I've got to be true to myself. Wow. Our culture has said that so loudly, so many different ways. That's just a quintessential example. That if someone finds, I love you and I love you, I've desperately want to have a sexual relationship, both you and you, well, then you do. That's who you are. Then as Christians, though, we easily say, no, we all know we experience lots of desires that aren't good for us, desires which aren't going to be the route to fullness of life. No one really believes that what you find inside always is who you are and should be embraced as who you are. If we can't use it across the board, maybe it doesn't work. Maybe it's not who we are. Maybe someone needs to tell us who we are. And from that, we know how to live. And and yet that internalized of identity is it's... it. It has been 
absorbed by the church as well. Sometimes not Absolutely. on the extreme levels, but it's it's uh, it's very prevalent. I, I just that's this remind this remind me. You just did you review Carl Truman's book? There, his new yes, the making of modern yes, the, the rise yeah. and triumph of the modern self. I have not yes. read yes. your review. I'm curious because everything you're saying reflects a lot in that book. Um, yeah. I, I, just so you know, I liked a lot of it and probably agree with much of what he said. I think there's some, some serious problems scattered throughout. I think there are more minor points. There's that one page. It was just really terrible at the end when he talked about like celibate gay Christians. And I don't know. I just think it was, it was pretty bad, but it wasn't like his main point, <laughs> but he did try to say, and here's yeah. another example of how, and I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like yeah, anyway, no, um, cool. Would love, yeah, your quick thoughts on that book. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, so he's tracing the, the development of thought and thinking that brings us to this point I just kind of described. The roots, yeah, he's and, showing like the, the, this way of thinking, it's taken 200 years yeah, in yeah. the making, really. Um, yeah, and he's kind of pushing back on the argument or, or accompanying the argument I made earlier that contraception changed everything by saying thinking was also right. changed. I think in the kind of the tracing the historical history of thoughts, I found it hugely enlightening. People I have not read and we struggle to read, so I'm very glad scholars like him helped me to do that. I, right. I can't easily critique it. It's, it was certainly very enlightening. I think, yeah, I think, and I don't want to be critical on this, actually, because it's understandable. I think so some of the ways he talks about the LGBT community, even though it's very, kind of, you know, so as a same-sex attracted or gay guy, when people talk indiscriminately about the LGBT community, especially negatively, just gets a backup. They're like, well, surely, by definition, I'm in that crew, yeah. and yet you're not describing me at all. Um, and even wait, you know, the whole book is premised on how would his grandfather not have accepted um, the idea of I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, but today people would. Which is f- a fair game is an interesting point, but actually the trans conversation has moved on. Most people don't talk about being trapped in the wrong body anymore. I'm quite against that language. Yeah. And you just wonder, I, I don't know if it was read before it's published by anyone who is more of an expert in that particular area. Yeah. Carl Truman is an amazing scholar and it's an amazing piece of work. It just might have benefited from a little bit of a yeah. scan from someone who kind of, and that would have noticed what you said. Um, and the other thing I said is, I really hope the Publishers Commission a shorter, accessible paperback edition for pastors, yeah. which has more application. Because understandably, in a big academic thing, it doesn't need much application. It's probably a bit too much for most pastors right. in my kind of context. But it's such good stuff. It'd be great if that is available. That's great. No, that, that's almost word for word my critiques. It doesn't seem like he's he's been really engaged in the LGBT conversation um, a little bit. And I, you know, looking at some of his endorsers and people he's getting mm. advice from, it's, it's, it's maybe one piece of that conversation, but yeah, I, I think it definitely could have used more nuance and it's hard, you know, as an academic, but also as somebody who does a lot of more pastoral theology, mm. I, you know, I can, I don't know. I, 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 I kind of go back and forth on that. Like in, in one sense, if an academic is doing academic work, it's kind of like, well, their, their language isn't going to be as like soft and they're not going to, you know, um, and sometimes, yeah, like going back to the, the analogies, sometimes using analogies can be offend certain people, especially the way they've been using the past. But if it, if it is a good logical argument to refer to the logic of this thing and then this thing and test consistency, like academics don't, you don't have the right to say, oh, that offends me. I can't deal. They're like, well, no, we're in a seminar and you're some, you're yeah. somebody's pushing back in your thesis. You need to address it. You can't just, we're not going to, you know, coddle you. So I, so I, I understand that. And yet, mm. I don't know, is there ever a place <laughs> to just do uh, academic work as a Christian with the LGBT conversation, given the 
history of how we've kind of butchered the, you know, the, mm-hmm. our approach to that. So anyway, again, just kind of thinking out loud and resonating with what you're saying. Um, with, with polyamory, I, I, I wonder, am I, am I right to say, I, I think that it could eventually be easier for polyamory to be accepted in the church than same-sex relationships, largely because there's a little more ambiguity in Scripture to my... Now, okay, so mm-hmm. my affirming friends listening are going to be irate that I even saying it like this. But, <laughs> you know, well, no, there's ambiguity with same-sex relationships. But they're, they're just within the Bible, there's kind of not, right? I mean, and I know all the... Obviously, I know all the counter arguments, but I mean, you don't have like a positive example or God regulating a same sex relationship. You don't have any kind of, you know, the the few times they're mentioned, they're prohibited. Marriage is always defined as male, female. Um, But with polyamory, more specifically polygamy, you do have kind of some ambiguity, especially in the Old Testament that, you know, um, I don't know. I could see somebody saying, well, it's just not as clear. So, I mean, once it becomes widely accepted in society, I could see maybe a bigger portion of the church being open to accepting it. That that's just my unpaid prophetic prediction. Have you thought about it from that <laughs> angle? Or yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The the small amount, and from what I've seen, it's small amount as yet of uh, Christian stuff or thing, stuff that's been written in support of polyamorous relationships from a self-identifying Christian perspective tends to be fairly negative or doesn't want to use polygamy in the Old Testament. They tend actually to push back against that, push away from that, because it's not polygamy, it's polyandry, it's uh, no, polygyny, multiple right, wives. Yeah. Very, very uh, so th- so patriarchal, male-centered. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, what I've read tends to actually want to really critique that, and, and you know, I think there's some healthy critique to be pushed back there. So I, most arguments I've read haven't been from that. People more often, the two theological arguments I've seen made are that's a, a thruple particularly better reflects the Trinity. Oh, yeah. So actually they say if human, you know, so it's a bit of a kind of, maybe the image of God is meant about relationality, about reflecting God and the Trinity, or well, actually three is better than two, so we can better reflect God in that way. It's one argument made. Another argument made is actually the relationship between Christ and the church is the relationship between Christ, one, and you, me, and lots of other people. Mm-hmm. So actually, so people say Jesus is a polyamorous. Um, mm-hmm. And so therefore actually a, a polyamorous relationship just reflects the relationship between Jesus and lots of Christians. Uh, on the former one, the Trinity thing, I think it's important that Scripture doesn't, to my knowledge of sight, particularly link sexual marriage relationships and the Trinity. I think it deliberately doesn't do that. So I, I don't see that in Genesis 1, 27, 28 kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think God was wise not to put that in because he knew, no, marriage is about Christ and the church, mm-hmm. not about the three persons of the Trinity. General relationality mm-hmm. in our being, yeah, okay, we're, we're made in the image of relational God, that makes sense. But it's not the case that marriage and sex are linked to the Trinity in Scripture, from what I can think. Right. And on the Christ Church thing, it's just a classic individualistic mindset. Yeah. We so easily think. I'm trying to change my preaching uh, to, to, to recognize, because so often I preach individually. I'm preaching on Sunday on Leviticus, yes. Um, <laughs> the message of Leviticus is how can imperfect people live with a holy God? And God takes the initiative to make that way possible, mm-hmm. which means God wants you. Isn't that incredible? God wants yeah. you. The book of Leviticus shows God desperately wants a relationship with you. And then I thought, that is true. It's wonderfully true. But actually, God wants us. God mm. wants the people for his name. Almost always in scripture, it's corporate. Um, and it's so easy for me, because I'm a modern Westerner in an individualistic society who thinks more of herself than I should, to think, yeah, it's Jesus and all of us, including me. Actually, it's Jesus and his bride, the church. 
Right. And so really, I think the argument that argues that polyamorous relationships based on that is more individualistic than the Bible allows us to be. Yeah. And yeah, if you push that Christ in the church in that direction, I mean, that's just... It's just weird. Like, so you, have, everyone. you have Jesus who's now bisexual with like billions of spouses. Like, is that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he goes, he goes with it. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if we want to push that the individualistic version of that to its logical conclusion. And clearly, Christ, uh, the church is a singular entity in that analogy, and Yahweh and Israel in the old. Um, yeah, it'll be. Yeah, it'll be. It'll be interesting. What what happens here? <laughs> um, <laughs> See, so, uh, we haven't gotten to your book, uh, Andrew. Uh, it's now, what, 45 minutes into the podcast. And you, uh, this is so hilarious. You recently wrote a book and didn't realize that it was already out. I don't know if I've met an author well, that was no. like, oh, my book came out last week. I didn't even know. I think it's not my fault. It's a very small, a really good small publishing company. Uh, there was a charity in the UK who produced these small booklets. Okay. And I, I think just because they're small and they're trying to do a lot of work, it wasn't made crystal clear to me when it was coming out. Yeah. Or oh, I didn't hear, I didn't know, yeah. So I thought it was September, and excitingly, it entered the world last week. <laughs> so tell us about the book, what's the title, what brought you into wanting to write a book on such a non-controversial topic? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the book is called People Not Pronouns, Reflections on Transgender Experience. Uh, it's only a short booklet, as I say, and really what I hope it provides is a first stop introduction to the topic of trans, the experience of gender dysphoria, and how might we as Christians reflect on and kind of respond to that. Which I guess grew out of my, my interest in that topic, my having the opportunity to think and engage and teach on it, which really started, uh, I guess, six years ago when Mark Yarhouse produced the book Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Really helpful book. I kind of picked it up as someone who is interested in matters of sexuality and gender, as a guy who's same-sex attracted, as a guy who... Uh, has had a level of discomfort about my own gender. I thought it would be interesting. And as I read it, I really resonated with the experience of uh, gender dysphoric people and just what, what Mark was describing for two reasons. One, for a time in my childhood, there was a time when I very strongly believed that though I'm a boy externally, I was a girl inside. Really? I had this really vivid memory, for some reason a vivid memory of being my grandparents' porch, don't know why it was there, but of, of this fear that one day I would get pregnant and my big secret would be found out. Wow. I was a sheltered Christian kid, didn't know how these things work, but I really believe that inside I was a girl and I might get pregnant. I remember thinking, I'm going to have to never get married and live with my parents forever so no one ever finds this out. And that abated, that went away naturally as I grew up, but always lived with this kind of sense of not really making the cut as a man, hated being in all male environments, always wanted to be with the girls, Harbored, like, hated stag dudes, which is our version of like the pre-wedding kind of thing for the guys. Yeah. And always, always secretly harbored this longing to be invited to one of my friends' hen zoos with the girls. <laughs> anyway, all of this, when I read this book, I was like, I can totally get how mm. some people genuinely experience themselves to be of a different sex to what their body says. And then also I noticed, well, this is an experience of people who are experiencing something that is difficult, confusing, unsettling, and where people in the church just don't get them and are not treating them well often. Mm. I was like, that's exactly the situation of same-sex attracted people hmm. even just five years ago before that. And again, it's this thing, actually, we need to be proactive. This thing is coming, this thing is happening, and, and real people are being affected. We need to engage. So basically, from that point, began to think about it, read about it, try to learn about it. Began then, people began to realize that, began to get some invites to speak in different places, because as you say, not many people are happy to or kind of feel able to engage with it. Long as to be short, kind of got to the point where I thought, and I think there's some thinking I've done that could form a helpful short introduction. And what I try to do is give a three-part overview or structure for a, a rounded Christian response. Because okay. my observation is often as Christians, we focus on a particular element of a Christian response, and actually we don't get the breadth that we need. 
So I talk about a heart response, then a head response and a hope response, each one of which is needed. And each one of which I hope the booklet brings something a little bit extra to the conversation and to the resources that are already there. So the heart response is all about actually what do we feel towards transgender people? And, and just affirming the point that has been very well made, well made elsewhere of we need to actively love mm-hmm. and need to have genuine compassion for the genuine pain of gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And I've really gone at that in the booklet because still I hear stories of people in the UK who have horrific experiences in what should be, what are well-respected mm-hmm. Bible-believing churches. I heard one just uh, half a year ago at a church in London, a trans person joined really kind of get settled in, a person befriended them in a really lovely way of walking alongside them. When friends of the person who befriended found out this person was trans, they started picking on this person, telling them to withdraw, and they basically abandoned this trans person. Wow. And then they went to church, and, and now they don't want to go to a church because they don't mm. trust Christians, they're being so hurt. And I was like, man, there's still a need for us to mm. talk about what's our heart attitude, what's God's heart, yeah. how should our heart reflect that? Wait, then wait. the head response, sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead, I thought you were done. Keep going. Oh, the, the head response, I then turn to, well, how do we think about transgender? How do we kind of conceive of this and gender dysphoria? And really there I talk about identity, but like we've done already, because my observation is in our culture, trans and the experience of gender dysphoria is so much an identity thing. Who I feel inside is who I am. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter what the body says, what anyone else says. And you see that so clearly in the language in coming out stories and different things. I didn't think I'd seen something which directly kind of engaged with the identity thing. So I talk about internal identity, like we talked about earlier, how our culture, such as Frozen, so clearly tells us that story, but how it doesn't work because our feelings, our desires, our intuitive beliefs can change. They're not a stable basis. They can conflict. What if I really want this or really want that or I really believe this about myself and I believe this, but they can't go together? Well, which one's me? Mm-hmm. And the big killer is we all know actually there are some things we might desire, which we wouldn't say we should embrace as who we are, or there are some things we might believe about ourselves, which we wouldn't say that's who you are. And there are parallel trans experiences, mm-hmm. which sensitively you can bring into the conversation and use there. And so I say, actually, if who we are inside doesn't work, and actually basing who you are on what other people think of you doesn't work, because what if they change their mind? You can't always live such a good life. They always think well of you. We need something different. We need divine identity. Mm-hmm. So I explore the fact that we're given divine identity as those in the image of God. And strikingly, Genesis 1.27, it's in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. Mm-hmm. In the same way the image of God is a given identity by the fact that God creates us and he gives us that identity, the male and female is likewise given. Very next verse is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. There's something bodily. You know, yeah. How do you know if you're male or female? It's whether your body is or what role your body is orientated to blame reproduction. I think you see that there. And so I talk about that. I talk about stereotypes as well. And my continued discomfort with my masculinity, I think, was about stereotypes. I just didn't believe I, I made the cut. I so didn't feel like I could really be a real man. But actually realizing, though, Genesis 127 says I'm a man because God says I'm a man, freed me. It gives me the freedom to be how I am. So the fact that I love Downton Abbey and musicals and pretty things <laughs> without changing who I am. That doesn't change who I am as a man. It's just how I am, actually. These things aren't kind of uh, influencing that. So talk about stereotypes. But then kind of you get there, and that's often, I think, where people stop. We've got a heart response, we've got understanding, and I think that it does mean that transitioning isn't the best or the right uh, option for someone, especially someone who's following Jesus who's through its gender dysphoria. But then you're saying, okay, but people are then left with gender dysphoria, which can be incredibly painful and debilitating and difficult. We can't just leave it there. 
So I talk about a hope response. So I actually say, how does the way the Bible resources us to, to handle suffering in our own lives and to support other people who are suffering, mm-hmm. how does that equip us to walk alongside some people who may, out of faithfulness to Jesus, choose not to transition, even though everything in them kind of screams out that they want to? Mm-hmm. So I talk about the Bible's big story, the, the explanation it gives us, the hope it gives us, the future, the role of laments in dealing with pain, the role of just being good friends to people, how we navigate painful things in life. And so my hope is that those three things together give us a full-bodied response that kind of engage with all the issues that are needed. And even though it's a short booklet, it can't tackle lots of the practical questions, it's hopefully a framework to keep in mind as we then talk about or think about those questions. That's great, man. That sounds like a, man, what a great, greatly needed book. And I, I mean, of course you can't answer all the questions. It's designed to be a short book, but man, we need some of the big books, We need, but we need the short yeah, ones yeah. too that you know, that more people will pick up and can digest and just get that yeah. introduction. That's fantastic. Um, so it's already out. Uh, people, yeah. not pronouns. Did you come up with that title? Uh, I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> I saw that. I was like, I had to think about it. Like, ah, that's, yeah, that's uh, provocative. Not provide. Um, what is provocative in a good way? Not, not, um, Challenging, hopefully. Challenging. would Yeah, challenging is a better word, yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, a thread throughout it is that, yeah. And that's, you know, a heart of all the work I do is sexual race and gender, actually, of let's not forget the people. Yeah. We so easily talk, we talk abstract. And pronouns is the classic one in the trans conversation. Yeah. We go abstract. And, and there's a, of course, there's an important place in those conversations. Yeah. But I know what it's like as a same-sex attracted gay guy to sit in a room and be talked about. Yeah. Or to sit in Christian context and feel, excuse me, this isn't abstract contact, construct. This is my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what about me? Yeah. So I think, yeah, part of it is trying to personalize it as well. Okay. That, yeah. So going back to, yeah, the parallels between, I, I, so I didn't know that about your background. Would, would you, um, did you, would you say you I- experienced gender dysphoria or would it not have been like, like if your parents brought you into a psychologist, would they have like diagnosed you? Did you have most of the signs or was it not quite that? I, I think probably not, I, I don't know. I, 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 I deliberately try not to talk myself having had gender dysphoria because I just don't know if it would have been clinically yeah. diagnosable in that way. I, I, won, I think in this context, day and age today, I would have done. I think, I think because it was, I didn't tell anyone, I hadn't ever heard of anyone being a man chatting or a woman chatting a man's body, I had no box to put it in. And so I just kind of felt it, decided to never get married, I'd live with my parents, it would just go away, it wouldn't yeah. be an issue. Dealt with it like that. Whether it would have manifested more strongly had I been in our context where I would have heard those kind of concepts and ideas. Uh, I, I expect I easily could have identified as trans. Um, and I, I think that might have aggravated, I wonder if that might have aggravated the experience of that at the time. But who knows in some ways. But, I've, I've heard something similar from a lot of different, especially gay men, that... Um, well, like, for, for, for kids, they, like... Sex and gender, to take the modern kind of way people understand that, they're kind of collapsed together so that boy, girl, masculine, feminine, they're all kind of blurred together. So it does make sense mm-hmm. that as a younger kid, and I've heard this from several other people who, as they grew up, they ended up just being same-sex attracted, gay or whatever. Um, but they said, yeah, when they were younger, it was a lot. So when they got older, they were fine saying, okay, I, I don't maybe resonate with a lot of the stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. But as a kid, it's easy to interpret that as I am a girl or I yeah. am a boy, you know? Um, so I think that's, have, have you, in your experience with other people, have you, your story, have you seen other people say that that's similar to their kind of trajectory too? 
I think so. I think it's not a universal thing, but I think I think anecdotally, yes, and certainly I'm aware of similar, or there are, there are studies. I mean, gender nonconformity seems to be one of the right. uh, strongest predictors of same-sex attraction later in life. I think especially for guys. It's not always the way, but especially can be. And the you know the the rate of um, guys particularly who experience some level of strong gender non- nonconformity, even gender dysphoria in childhood, mm-hmm. who then grow up uh, right. to be sense-attracted is really high. I mean, one pediatrician once told me, I think it's basically 99%, and that's not from a study, but their pediatrician observation was it's as high as that. And I think what studies have been done show that. That's yeah. particularly with guys, but I think what we're seeing in the UK at the moment, all the stuff about um, trans teens and stuff, and yeah. the number of now detransitioning yeah. uh, people, detransitioning young women, who are saying, actually, uh, I was a lesbian, I am a lesbian, I'm attracted to girls, right. and there was internalized homophobia or whatever, or gender nonconformity, and that led me down the trans narrative. I think we are also seeing yeah. the evidence of it among young women as well. Well, I've seen that concern, especially with older LGB people, primarily LG people, yeah. lesbian and gays, um, that, and I'm not necessarily endorsing this view, I'm just saying that it's a, it's a fairly popular viewpoint among older gay and lesbian people that a lot of the younger people identifying as trans, they would say, I think you're just gay. Like, I don't, and a lot of them say, yeah, if I was raised in this generation, I would have probably been told I was trans or genderqueer or something too. Um, so that there does seem, I don't know. And, and I, it's, 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 I can't speak to it experientially. So it's just, I think it's an interesting observation, especially like, as you said, with what seems to be a growing number of detransitioners. Do we have any data yet on that specifically? Like, people who would fit more the rapid onset gender dysphoria paradigm where there was some sort of like social influence in their trans identity as a teen and now they're detransitioning. It just seems like a, a lot, but I'm just, you know, if, what yeah. am I going on? I'm going on personal stories, friends of friends of friends and their friends and their friends and then online communities. And what seems like a, a new YouTuber every day that comes out with I'm detransitioning, but all of that's still anecdotal. Is that still 5% of trans identified people's yeah, or 50? Yeah. I, do we have any actual data on that yet, or not to my knowledge? I'm not. I'm not sure. I think partly in terms of academic studies in the UK, there's been genuine fear of engagement. I'm, I'm friends of a, an older guy who wanted to do, say, he's a clinical psychologist or psychiatrist, wanted to do some research on detransitioners, was denied ethical approval, and basically the a small print said they were scared what people would say on social media about the university. So wait, you, can you I, can't do. Is it? Is it is this name James Caspian? James Caspian, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've he read about that. Attacked. Can you? I I yeah, yeah. I read it somewhere, and I was like, wait, so that actually happened? I mean, it's always you always wonder, yeah. like, I don't know, is that really what? Oh no, yeah, yeah. I've sat down with him, lovely guy. Um, yeah, worked for I think ten years in a private gender clinic with adults primarily, I guess. I'm not sure in London. He's uh, yeah, a psychiatrist, so we do kind of you know assessments of people, marks and stuff. Became very concerned with the lack of psychiatric assessment um, uh, and, and uh, you know, looks exploration of kind of psychological interventions before putting people onto a social and medical transitioning pathway. Uh, came, so resigned from his job because of his kind of concerns about are we doing the right thing and this is right for me to be involved in. Wanted to go and do this research at a, a UK university and was denied. I, th- I think there was a, a different reason, reason given on like the official paperwork but it was also made quite clear somewhere that basically it was a kind of reputation thing that was the issue. Wow. He then took it through, um, he challenged that ruling uh, at, 
in various courts. I get confused the court system here. It got quite senior. I eventually went to the European court, I think, and amazingly didn't win, which I do think, based on their situation, does seem quite amazing. Um, as he sort of didn't get kind of given the the, the permission. So hmm. I think the figures are missing because the academic research isn't being allowed. But then also I think the transitioners tend to well, they tend to fall off the books. You know, if you stop taking your hormones and such like, you're not going to turn to the people who you now think forced you to go into them far too quickly, didn't give you sufficient support beforehand. Mm. You're it's not going to trust them, so you don't go back. So the success rates look great. Look at all these people who are now living happy lives who never came back, or they didn't feel they could come back because you pushed them in an unhelpful direction. They're now feeling very unsure about that. And that's you don't have the numbers at all. Just so my audience can follow this, it's actually an important point because there has been. A couple, I don't know, one, two, three, four surveys done on transition regret. And they usually turn back 1%, 0.5%, 2%, maybe 5% transi- transition regret. Um, but that's what you're pointing on, what you're pointing to is, is the the methodology that has gone into that. It's yeah. pretty shady. Just that, like, well, all the people that transition, we never saw them back saying, hey, I regret this. It's like, well, the fact that they didn't come back doesn't necessarily mean that there's been pos- positive, yeah. ongoing positive um, results. Um, and also, there's that kind of key, I don't know if you've heard, the kind of seven to ten year mark that uh, yeah. the first few years of after transition, there's typically a pretty positive uh, response. But a lot, a lot of people have said that seven to ten year, once you get seven to ten years after, there's that's usually when... A decent number. Again, we're, it's hard to even have the percentages, but that's when a lot of the regret comes in. But and regret might not lead to detransition. I just talked to uh, Scott mm. Nugent, who uh, transitioned at forty-two. He's forty-eight now. So yeah, he's right in that six, seven-year mark. And he says he holy. I mean, so many issues with his. He had so many surgical problems, and even ideologically, uh-huh. he didn't. It was just a. It yeah. wasn't. But he's like, I'm not going to detransition. He was like, no, I'm not going to detransition. That's just going to bring more problems. But there's certainly a level of like, yeah, I don't recommend this, you know. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, but that's interesting. That I mean, it's sad, really, because detransitioners are people, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> In an effort to like humanize a minority population, yeah, yeah. we're dehumanize dehumanizing a minority within the minority. Um, and if we can't do research on what, on this from a data perspective, like how we, we're not helping the cause just because a story might be a threat to somebody's ideology or something. There's two ways. We can't protect people who are exploring the possibility of transition and help them make a wise decision. Is this a wise thing for you? Mm -hmm. But also detransitioners tend to be left with very little help afterwards. Mm Um, so one of the kind of uh, working groups I'm involved with here in the UK, which is basically a group of people, clinicians, I think I'm pretty past it, mostly clinicians, saying, how do we love trans people well and serve them well as a nation? What, what role could we play in trying to help this kind of like, messy situation we're in? And one of the conversations we're having is there's so little provision for detransitioners medically. You know, you've got a whole lot of medical questions, you become a tra- of hormones and stuff. It's so hard and actually to access the kind of support they need. You know, detransition care kind of isn't a, isn't right. a field of medicine. Right. So we're just beginning to think, what are the needs? What are the questions? How can we help that? But there's, yeah, it's such a sad thing that actually detransitioners are the, the overlooked people. I, I mean, a good thing in a sense is their voice is being heard much more, which I think is good in terms of the thing yeah. of safeguarding young people especially. But I think their needs aren't particularly met. And, and there are certainly many medical needs that need to be 
addressed by medical professionals. But I also think there's a, a opportunity for the church to raise up. Here are a group of people who are hurting, who are being mistreated, mm-hmm. who many people are now rejecting, who are not finding people who will support them in this pretty much unwalked path. Yeah. That should be our job, surely. Surely you know, those in the outskirts, those uh, being pushed out, we're the ones who are meant to love them. And wouldn't it be amazing if someone do traditions and they think, I know the best place I can go to get support and love is my local church. It's my little visions. I'd love to, you know, that'd be an amazing thing to have. And that should be the kind of people we are, right? That yeah. should that should happen. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I was with you. I've got several friends that have detransitioned and or are detransitioning. And that's a, man, that's that's a tough, really tough spot yeah. to be. Um, sometimes, like, the dysphoria is still there, perhaps. Um, and there's medical challenges. There's financial stuff. There's social, like, just the whole, like, because they are, in most cases, this community that celebrated them, accepted them, now see them as toxic yeah. and a threat and 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 i you know if i put myself in 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 other people's shoes i mean some detransitioners have been quite outspoken against what they would see as like ideological brainwashing and and have challenged and even you know in the case of the uk with kira bell have have um had effects on kids having access to puberty blockers and so on so if you if you if i just played if i just try to see things from the other side. I could see like, oh my gosh, these detransitioners they're they're yeah. they're not helping us really why with their outspokenness. But um but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think it's really helpful to have all, a range of different voices uh being presented yeah, yeah. so that we can consider all all uh all kinds of people. But um Andrew, I've taken you uh much too long. Well, not too long, but this is a little, little <laughs> over time. But man, I'm so excited to read your book. Thank you for the copy that you have uh, sent my way. And uh, love what you guys are doing at Living Out. Can you give us some, if people want to find you or the Living Out um, resources, where, yeah. where do they go? Uh, yeah, so livingout.org is our website. And we're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just under Living Out. Um, and then I'm uh, Andrew Bunt on Twitter. And uh, yeah, most of my stuff's living out on thinktheology.co.uk. Okay. And you guys, I don't know, this, this in 2021, you guys really cranked it up, it seems like. I mean, you guys are producing all kinds of blog posts and book reviews and podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's just a, a lot of um, really, really helpful, accessible, and thoughtful uh, resources. So, thank you uh, for what you guys are doing and pass on my greetings to the rest of the Living Out team. You guys Would are awesome. It? Yeah. All right. Take care. Thanks, Andy, right. for uh, being on the Thanks show. Thanks so much, Preston. Real pleasure.